Morning, sinners. Glad you're all here today. I just want to say welcome to all the single people, the non-married people, and the married people. People who are straight and the people who are not. I want to say welcome to the people who are single by choice and to those who are not. To those who are married by choice and those who are not. What do you mean, Jerry? Well, they didn't have the guts to call off the marriage when they knew deep down in their hearts that they shouldn't have made the commitment. Ooh, I heard that. I want to say welcome to those of you in this room who are virgins. Those of you who are experienced sexually. And those who are extremely promiscuous. I want to welcome those who are abused sexually by somebody in their neighborhood or their family. Or even somebody from the church. I welcome those who have, been, who have been or currently are being sexually abused in their marriage. Welcome to those who struggle with same-sex attraction and never acted on it. And to those who identify with same-sex attraction and have acted on it. I welcome those who are married and enjoy a healthy and intimate sex life. And those whose marriage is just a piece of paper. A welcome to the husbands who are hoping after today that they'll get more sex from their wife. <laughs> and to their wives who are dreading going to bed with the man that she is sitting next to. I want to welcome the chronic masturbating porn addict, man and woman. And to the individual who doesn't understand why they are so afraid of sex to the point that they're even paralyzed to the thought. Welcome to the spouses who'd rather watch a screen and masturbate than rather spending time with their spouse in bed. And the list can go on. I just wonder, have I missed anybody? That was kind of uncomfortable, wasn't it? Welcome to church. Welcome to Seoul. Maybe I should have given the disclaimer beforehand, but we're here now. And with that in mind, I want to be very frank today. I may make some of you mad. I will make all of you think, but my question is, can we still be friends? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak to us through your word. God, speak through me in spite of me. I pray that you would have your way in this place. And so, Father God, invade the deepest parts of our being. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Last week was the introduction on our series of the theology of sex. If you weren't here, uh, you need to go online and, and get, catch up to speed because there's just things that are implicit as I continue to move through. We address the fact that our culture is changing at an astonishing rate that affects our worldview. Our worldview impacts our values, the way we process information and how we draw our conclusions. It also determines how we think about God, how we think about humanity, how we think about religion. Most scholars and historians agree that when a major worldview cultural shift takes place, profound changes to society in general result. And so we are living in an age of experiencing major transitions in the way that we view life in the way that we view religion, and most importantly, in the way that we actually think about sexuality. And we learned from last week that emerging generations that are coming up have no religious framework to fall on like other generations. So let's talk about generations for a moment. 
A generation is a group of people born around the same time, raised around the same place. People in this birth cohort, as they call it, they exhibit similar uh, characters, preferences, and values over their lifetimes. Generations are not a box, okay? You got to think about it that way. Instead, there are, there are just powerful clues that are showing where to begin and connecting with influencing people of different ages. There are big differences between the generations, and it's important to know the years when each generation begins and ends. So work with me here today. Traditionalists, you're born 1945 and earlier. Are there any traditionalists in the house today? Yay! <laughs> maybe one, maybe two, I'm not quite sure. Boomers, 46 to 64, any boomers in the house? <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, remember last week, what I didn't mention, we talked about the sexual revolution during this time. What I didn't mention, what I will, there's also a civil rights re revolution, both for uh, um, Martin Luther and uh, the black community, but also the gay community, which was significant. And again, we will be addressing that as time goes on. Gen X, born 65 to 76. Any Gen Xers in the house? Yeah, you guys are called latchkey kids, really, because of the boomers. They screwed everything up for everybody else, right? They ended up splitting families. They did. This is truly what has happened. They split the families. They double-worked uh, single parents. So they had this thing called latchkey. Are any latchkey kids in the house? You know what a latchkey kid is? Kid who returns to school to an empty home, right? Because both or one or both parents are always working. Little parental, uh, parental supervision because, again, they took the key. They went home after school. Uh, children as young as five years old who provided their own self-care at home. Our social system would go crazy if they heard that today. But this was Gen X. This was the fallout of the family going through there. It jaded. All you Gen Xers are jaded. Just throwing it out there right now. Okay? Millennials, born 77 to 95. You'll notice the 200s, 2000s in the bracket because there is some debate whether or not 2000 should be the, the end time in 2001 the start time for Gen Z. It's important. It has to do with 9-11 uh, because some people remember it, some people don't, but I'm not going to get into that. Gen Z, born between 96 and let's say 2001. Any? Uh, woo! Yeah, the, the whole front row. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's important that you can be born uh, anywhere, you know, three years on either side, beginning or ending of a generation, and you can still have all the characteristics of a generation either before or after. Now, this has to do with a number of factors, including the age of your parents. If you grew up in an urban or rural environment, uh, positions of affluence or not, education and so much more. That affects all the generations. That affects how we look at the world. A quick takeaway, again, about generations, uh, the, the youngest generation that we have right uh, with us today. Smartphones are ever present. <laughs> Somebody from the band left their smartphone up here. <laughs> Ooh, pictures. Hang on. <laughs> Don't leave your phones with me. <laughs> anyway, Gen Z, put your hand up if you're Gen Z. Keep it up for a while. Everybody take a look around. You see the Gen Zs all around the room? That's great. Now, they are ever-present. At an earlier age than ever before, 95% of Gen Z between the ages of 13 and 22 already have a smartphone. 
In fact, the age for acquiring one's first cell phone continues to get younger and younger. Gen Z is constantly connected. Females are on their phone, obviously, more than males. Just got to say it. Over half their phones, uh, over, over half of them are on their phones more than five hours in a day. Of that, 26% use them 10 hours or more. Even after midnight, when they should be in bed, 65% say that they're on a couple times a week. 29% of that 65 says they're on every night after midnight. Millennials, you guys, 39% of millennials say that they're on their phone after midnight and a few times a week or more. And so that's a whole lot of texting, swiping, uh, posting, and chatting that's going on right now, all because of this little device. The majority of Gen Z experiences a negative reaction in the form of discomfort when they're separated by their phones for even a short period of time. I would like to see, is there anybody who's willing to throw their phone in here for the next little while? Will you? Awesome. Can you, uh, yeah, just do it. Awesome. Please do it. Anybody else? Anybody got? Okay, fabulous. You're going to watch people go through withdrawal. I'll guarantee it. Anybody else? There we go. You got rid of your phone. Anybody else want to try this? Come on. I'll just leave it right here. Somebody said, is that a barf bucket for you? I said, after today, you'll feel like it as well. Trust me. Now, 58%, those of you who put your phones in there, 58% feel uncomfortable when they don't have their phone for a few hours or less. Of those, 31% are uncomfortable about being away from their phones for 30 minutes or less. What happens if a device is lost or broken? Stress levels escalate exponentially, especially for females. Gen Z essentially seems to view their smartphones as an extension of themselves. It's as if messing with their phone is the same thing as messing with them. They become stressed when somebody hides their phone. They become even more stressed when somebody touches their phone without permission. <laughs> They truly don't want anybody messing with their phones. Really? <laughs> oh, I love these screenshots. This is fabulous. Oh, you got some messages on this one. Do you mind if I read them? Face ID. You're smart. Okay, that's good. Social media is a space where Gen X is, uh, we'll just simply say that they occupy social media comfortably, naturally. And this is especially true for the females who outpace males on social media usage. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. Ooh, watch out for TikTok. I'm just telling you. The Chinese got something going there. There's a thing on my Facebook you need to read. Go for there. I'm dead serious. It's uh, spyware. Gen Z has never known a world without high-speed internet. Remember boomers? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, wireless internet, video chat, instant messaging, social media, ever-present handheld devices. Again, what's in our handheld devices is what used to fill a whole room of for one computer. Gen Z parents are not the baby boomers who raised millennials, but rather Gen X and even older millennials. The research has shown that the millennials are choosing to raise their children differently than baby boomers and combining all these external factors, all these trends, all these influences, it's clear that Gen Z is not a continuation of millennial thought, but rather it's actually its own generation. Judges 2 says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. 
According to this reference here, we see that after one generation died, the subsequent generation did not pursue a faith in God. And if you go and you begin to examine Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to Judges 3, verse 7, we see that there's this brief preview of the cycle of sin, of judgment and, and then repentance that Israel, they experience again and again and again. And each generation that failed to teach the next generation to follow and to love God suffered consequences. And today, I actually want to focus on Generation Z, Generation Z. That's you guys. But I need to say that this life lesson applies to everyone. Are you tracking with me? So last week I pointed out a number of ideologies that are predominant in our society. Our culture says that truth is relative for each individual person. That the body and the soul, they're not one unit. That truth and people, uh, so sorry, that people and individuals, they, they must find and define what is good for them. And that people should be sexually free. And if they are sexually free, well, then we will be happy. The conclusion is that the body doesn't matter. So we can do whatever we want with our body. We can do whatever we want sexually because sex and bodies, it really doesn't mean anything. And we see these philosophies in our hookup culture. A culture denies that bodies matter, discourages authentic relationships, tries to turn sex either into a hobby or a low-value biological need. I also mentioned that it was God who created the human body and soul as one. And it was he who created, it was he who gave us sexuality. It was he who said it was good. So God created sex. Let's just put it out there. Some Christians growing up hearing that sex is bad and dirty, save it for marriage. And to be frank, that has negatively affected many people. So with that in mind, we need to see that there have been a number of reasons why God created sex. We learned last week that sex was for procreation. It was for having children. Genesis 1.28 tells us to, be, uh, to fill the earth and subdue it. We read in Psalms that the quiver full is from the Lord. We read again in Genesis 2 that a man will leave his father or mother and hold fast to his, uh, his wife. That means a man will leave out of their parents' house. The man will grow up. The man will get a job. He'll, go, he'll grow into responsibility. He'll find a wife. The two will then become one flesh. Here the Hebrew there, the idea for one flesh is a mingling of soul. And God said it was not good for a man to be alone. So what does he do? He gives him a buddy. Uh, maybe he gives him golf. I'm not quite sure. Football, video games. No, it's a wife, it says. A man grows up, he gets a job, he gets mature, he gets out of the house, he finds a wife, the two become one flesh partners. I just hear this hum. It's very quiet. I don't know if you hear that. 1 Corinthians 7, we see that sex was given for pro, uh, protection. Each man should have his own husband. Each man should have... <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with what I got. Uh, I, each woman should have her own husband, each man her own wife, and do not deprive one another. This talks uh, about that there is a desire that, uh, in us to be sexual creatures, and we were designed for it physically, we were designed for it emotionally and mentally, and God is saying, yes, get married, but don't use sex as a weapon, which means women do not use it to control men, and men do not use it to manipulate and control. We've got to be freely giving ourselves to our partner. Sex is also for companionship, for unity, and for pleasure. You know that sex is also about knowledge. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, 
and she conceived. I think one of the mistakes that we make is that we try to separate sex from a deep knowing. Sex was designed to work well inside a deep monogamous knowing relationship. We were designed to have sex with one another so that there's a level of knowing and trusting that occurs. A couple should feel known. Intimacy is more than just the act of sex. There's a strong sense of unity. And finally, sex was created by God for pleasure and not just for the man. The sole purpose of the woman's clitoris is for pleasure. I don't need to elaborate, but I think you get the picture that sex is pleasurable for both. Welcome to church. We need to talk. Unfortunately, God's good gifts can be twisted and distorted. Good sex can become bad sex, and Scripture tells the truth of the reality of sex gone wrong, and it does so unflinchingly. We have polygamy, we have rape, we have sexual violence, we have idolatry, and never think that idolatry has nothing to do with sex. Sex in a fallen world happens in hurtful ways and in ways that fail to tell the good truth about who God is. Sin exploits God's good creation. It twists it into something distorted and broken. In our culture, it's very difficult to talk about any kind of sex as bad sex. We live with this enormous cultural pressure to tolerate any and all private behavior because the pressure makes it difficult for our lives, body and soul, to mean anything. Because we're told that sex, it's private. That's none of our business. And so we have difficulty now recognizing the distortions of sin as dis the distortions that they are. We're tempted to write it all off as private choices. And so we need tools to discern when sex tells the truth about God and supports human flourishing and when sex denies the reality of God and is harmful to human beings. We have to have a way to diagnose the situation that we are in. We need those tools. Our generations need those tools to know when we are not embodying the truth of God. Who is, by the way, faithful? We sung about that, another in the fire, always with us, ever-present, faithful. We need to be able to recognize when we're embodied instead of brokenness and idolatry and sin. We need to speak publicly about this in the church. And when it comes to the topic of sex, our culture is in utter chaos. Our kids are growing up in an HD image-based culture, not a print-based one. Boomers, we were print-based. Traditional, we were print-based. Everybody else is now image-based. From all the doctored images and fantasy worlds of social media to a gaming society that acts as if it doesn't really need human touch and portrays reality in an unrealistic way, especially when it comes to sex. And unfortunately, porn is the sex ed teacher of our children. Porn is a sex ed teacher of Generation Z. And I'm not the ideal candidate to be talking about this, but listen, as a pastor, I have a biblical responsibility to share God's word on issues, even though there may be ones that I haven't personally struggled with. And I mentioned for, I was talking to a few friends this week that I've been up to my eyeballs in porn, quote, unquote. One responded, I thought you might be taking a break from porn for Lent. <laughs> I said, thanks, I really appreciate that. All that to say is, listen, I have read wildly. My, my, so widely, my brain is mush, literally. And so I've read, I've watched 
And what I'm going to present to you today will be reliant on the scholarship in many ways. But I hope that you'll see this as a thoughtfully attempt to also respond biblically to what Jesus says about porneia. There are three lies that society believes about porn. The first one, society says only people with addictive personalities will have a porn problem. A recent study by Simone Kuhn and Jurgen Galanat found that frequent porn consumers had significant reduction in gray matter. Think about this. Significant reduction in gray matter in their frontal lobes of the brain, making real-life sex seem boring in comparison to porn. They also found a decrease in neural connectivity in those areas. And so the important thing for you to know about this is that there are areas of the brain that control logic, reasoning, decision-making, and they all contribute to compulsive behavior. Porn turns your brains to mush. Isn't that interesting? They went out to... If, if you want the interview, I can send it to you. Just email the office, I'll send it to you. Secondly, porn obsession is for people who just can't get enough sex. Studies conclude that addiction is more about lack of healthy connections rather than an obsession over one substance or behavior. When it's healthy and reciprocated, that level of intimacy can help us feel important and powerful, wanted and useful. When somebody's caught in addiction, it becomes the only way their brain knows how to seek out connection. And because of the addictive nature of porn, a consumer's brain requires more extreme content in order to release the same level of feel-good dopamine after an orgasm. And so consumers, if I can use that word, often to seek out now more hardcore in porn because even the porn that they start watching starts getting boring. And remember, most of the things that drive people to porn, addiction, they're good, they're healthy, they're human desires, they're God-created, but it's been twisted into something that is dark. And finally, maybe you've heard cultures say, well, you know, watching porn is totally healthy if you only watch every once in a while or if you find ethical porn with less violence. That's my favorite. Sorry to mock it, but I have to. No. You know, I've heard people say, I watch porn all the time, and I'm fine. Try going out without it for a week. Try for a month, and the reality is you won't even make a week. And the second reason is that there's no amount of porn that is healthy because it's the long-term effects on how people see others. And this creates huge problems in current and future romantic relationships. Studies have shown that after consuming porn, people experience less attraction to the partner and less sexual satisfaction. People who watch porn train their brains to always be on the lookout for something more sexier, more exaggerated versions of the real thing. And because of that, they'll never be happy with what they have. And also, there's no such thing as ethical porn. Porn is a sexual stimulus, but it's not sex. Sage Publishing printed a, a study analyzing popular pornographic videos. It found that over 88% of the scenes contained physical aggression by males against females who were depicted as enjoying such treatment, such as slapping, gagging, and choking. Other studies have shown that men are more likely to act aggressively towards women after watching these videos. 
It's either naive or intellectual dishonesty to downplay the role of pornography in the sexual objectification of women in today's society. One moment we're leading a Me Too movement against sexual harassment and the objectification of women. And the next moment we conflate love with violence and we pay to watch the Fifty Shades of Whatever. Many are so desensitized to the issues of sexual spousal abuse, the concept that feminists once fought hard to legitimize. And what has happened? And the reality is if we really believe in the Me Too movement, and if we, we actually want to decrease child sex abuse and sex trafficking, then everybody should be offended by the portrayals of sex that not only denigrate women, but are abusive towards women as found in pornography. Watch this. This is Anna. Wait, wait, don't click to someone else yet because Anna's stuck here on your computer screen. And while you can walk away, her image is stuck on the internet. See, your fantasy is Anna's nightmare. There's a good chance recruiters lured her with flattery. Perhaps they baited her with cash. Maybe they even tranquilized her with date rape drugs. And if Anna's like many others, she stays sedated with alcohol, weed, or coke to numb the pain. Chances are she faces STDs and HIV because she's denied access to protection. We don't know what she's been through because we only see Anna smiling. And they keep showing Anna smiling so that you'll keep watching. See, pornography is integral to human trafficking and prostitution. In nine countries, almost half, 49%, said that pornography was made of them while they were in prostitution. This generation fights sex trafficking more than anyone ever has, and more than anyone ever has, this generation consumes porn. Fighting human trafficking and then watching porn is like protesting a corrupt politician and then donating to his campaign. You browse privately going from Anna to Zoe and back to Anna. Watch your favorite fantasy and then walk away. But Anna's still there, she's stuck there, stuck in this life because you click. Each click, each link, each URL visit and play button, this is the currency of porn. This is the price of Anna's life. The $100 billion pornography industry is fueling the appetite for children as well. Teenage girls now make up the biggest slice of viewable porn, which by definition is considered trafficking. The demand for porn fuels the trafficking industry and you can take away that demand. You can cut the cord on this machine. You can bankrupt the system. You can empty the pimp's pockets. You can free Anna by simply refusing to click. So we live in a culture where it's impossible to shield our children from hardcore pornography. The truth is nobody knows exactly how old most kids are when they are exposed to porn. Author James Emery White in his book Meet Generation Z says 70% of Gen Z regularly view porn online. Moreover, he actually mentions that the average age teens first watch porn is 11 years old. Some say as young as 8. An estimated 93% of men under the age of 18 have watched porn along with 62% of women of the same age. Nearly three quarters of 15 to 18 year olds have sexted. Half of 15 to 18 year olds have sent naked or semi-naked photos and videos of themselves, including dick pics. 84% have received sexually explicit messages by phone or by email. Send, this is what White says. He goes, sending these messages and images has actually become a new form of courtship. 
However, the physical damage, the emotional damage from being an object of pornographic image and videos cannot be overstated, especially when they are capable of being shared around friendship groups, entire schools, and virtually the entire world. Studies have shown that our kids who have been exposed to hardcore images and videos can be more likely to want to repeat what they have seen without actually understanding the meaning or the impact of what they have seen. And that has led to scenarios in which younger and younger girls and boys are being pressured into sexual acts by their peers and are more likely to believe that the acts that they see, such as anal sex, group sex, and typical, these are typical amongst their peers, and learning that sex is about fear, violence, and domination, not about love, intimacy, and connection. There's an entire generation of young people who think that sex ends with a money shot to the face. For the uninitiated out there, a money shot is an ejaculation on the face. Peg, Peggy Orenstein and Nancy Jo Sales wrote a couple of books, and in that they studied and analyzed adolescent girls and how they form their ideas about adult sexuality, sexuality, and it all comes from the online porn industry. This culture is actually socializing our young ladies to be ready for pornography, whether they end up on a porn site or not. The reason is, is that they are being taught to be hypersexualized and to pornify themselves. Just wander through any of the images that our culture sees every day in advertising. Much of our advertising is pornified and hypersexualized. Many of the thousands of images come down to a look. The look is usually a young, white, blonde, tall female. Some women are color are in it as well, providing that they look like Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, or Rihanna. Think about what it means to be a male growing up in a culture where before you can even speak, females are technically offering themselves to you. What happens to young girls when they're developing their own sexual identity and they learn that there's now two choices? You know, we can either be like culture or we can be invisible. And what teenage girl wants to be invisible? See, the culture is mass-perpetrating against our girls. For boys, we talk about porn, and I don't mean Playboy, Penthouse, or Hustler. That's for boomers. The internet has changed everything. There are three A's that drive demand, affordable, accessible, and anonymous. And imagine that a 12-year-old male decides that he's going to search porn online. What do you think he's going to see? Breasts? People having sex? Well, he doesn't even need a credit card, and the phone that he will use is that he'll just take his phone, and he'll Google porn, and the first thing he's going to see, which is actually the, a major act virtually on all websites, is gagging. Again, for the uninitiated, this is where a man puts his penis so far down a woman's throat that she gags almost to the point of vomiting. Now remember, porn is a major form of sex ed for our culture. With that in mind, please think of what is happening to the next generation of boys and girls, most of whom are all brought up on hardcore mainstream internet porn. And so that the normalization of violent sex is being passed down to future generations. As a parent of four boys, My kids deserve better than this. 
You don't need a PhD in media studies to understand the violence. And I want to make this very clear. This is mainstream porn. This is what anyone gets into within 15 seconds. And it's not even the worst. I don't even want to know what the worst is. This is the sex education of our world today. And they know from 40 years of research that younger boys are into porn. The the younger that boys are into porn, the more it limits their capacity for intimacy. The more it decreases their empathy for rape victims. The more it increases depression, anxiety, and the more likely they are to engage in risky sexual behavior. The studies show that people who regularly consume porn are more likely to have a less satisfying sex life, less sex in general, and sometimes no sex at all. Which is why we're witnessing in our culture now a phenomenon that's totally unprecedented in all human history. It's an epidemic of chronic erectile dysfunction. Especially amongst men under the age of 40. And the evidence is actually earth-shattering. Rates of ED amongst men under 40 range from 14 to 37%. And it's all attributed to porn. Many men in that age group report that during sex, they got to visualize pornographic movies in their heads in order to sustain an erection. Some must put on hardcore pornography on the background in order to be able to have sex with their partners, and incredibly, the partner agrees to this. Porn changes how men view sex. Porn changes how we view women. It teaches young men that abuse of women is not only normal, but that women, in fact, enjoy it. Meanwhile, porn teaches young women that to object to anything sexual, even if it's painful or demeaning, is abnormal. And it's this false view of sexuality that fuels behaviors in which young men behave as predators while young women are silently compliant. And this is the state of sexual normality that is being fed to our kids. And so pornography has this huge negative impact on relationships and as humans, and we're hardwired to have real-life relationships and build personal connections with each other. And so we need social interaction. We need a sense of community to thrive. You need to be in a life group. Can somebody give me a Kleenex? Oh, nobody all get up at once, please. I think at the prayer cross or one, there's a box there. Thank you. Oh, my own little special pad. CPAC. Awesome. Thank you. This has been a tough week for me. Because even in my research, our firewall here at the church would shut me down. But I spend time with my granddaughter and I think about the culture that she has to grow up in. I think about... These kids who I love, I love it when you take my seat. I love it when you're here and you worship. You need to know I pray for you. This false view of sexuality fuels behaviors in which young men behave as predators and women are compliant. This is normal sexuality. It has these negative impacts on our relationships. We need social interaction. We need the sense of community to thrive. And when that's missing, our consumers are going to turn to other sources. 
And usually what it is is coming porn. Performers on a screen. And yet as humans, as individuals, young and old, we all need real, genuine companionship. Not the fake intimacy that porn offers. So what are we going to do? How are we going to tie this porn monster down? It has to be about education. It has to be about information. It has to be about the church speaking out about it, being active about it. We all have a vested interest in the well-being of the next generation, of the generation even that we find ourselves in. Our children are worth more. Our culture is worth more. Our boys are worth more. Our girls are worth more. Last week I mentioned that sex is real. So if sex is real, we need to call it what it is when sex strains against the very nature of reality. When it denies who God is and tells lies about what it means to be human. The New Testament calls such sex, porneia, often translated as fornication or sexual immorality in your Bibles. The Greek word porneia is an umbrella term uh, uh, under which a number of different definitions will fit for sex gone wrong. The root word, it's obviously the root word where we get pornography from, but there's plenty of overlap between the biblical idea of porneia and the contemporary porn industry. The definition of porneia is all sex outside the bounds of marriage. This is why the church historically has always taught that, listen, growing up, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself sexually pure. When it mentions porneia in scriptures, it's all sex outside the bonds of marriage. Porneia also could be defined as sex deformed by sin. It's sex that is contrary to God's good intentions. And so to begin to get a sense of what it means to do sex in ways that deny God's reality, we got to look at it a few times that this word itself is used by Jesus. Now, Jesus' teachings about sex is uh, in continuity with the Old Testament and the people of Israel. He grew up in that culture. That was his framework. So he's using that culture. He assumes that there is such thing as good sex and bad sex. And when Jesus gives instructions as how to live as faithful followers of God, he addresses a, the question about divorce. And so Jesus teaches us in Matthew, he says, A man who divorces a wife, unless she has been faithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. That word unfaithful there is the word pernia. It's constituted grounds for divorce. Pornia is to violate the faithfulness of the marriage covenant. It's to deny the reality that God has created the one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Pornia means to cheat. It's to break faith with one's spouse. And obviously it includes adultery, but I actually believe that it incorporates other sins of, against faithfulness. Personally, I understand abuse as a kind of pornia. Like the one who commits adultery, anyone who would batter or abuse a wife or even a husband sins against his or her body. The batterer, like the adulterer, denies the reality that the spouse is truly faithful, united to him or her. And the batterer, like the adulterer, embodies this false image of what God intends faithfulness to look like in this world. Pornia is a sin against fidelity. Jesus also used the word pornea in the context of a response to an attack by some of the Pharisees. Again, in Matthew, they challenged him about hand washing and he responds, but the words you speak come from the heart. 
that's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. And again, the word sexual immorality there is that word porneia. Last week, I talked about how culture thinks in a dualistic approach. We can't misinterpret what Jesus is skewing, excuse me, saying here. There are those who will say that he's implying that bodies don't matter. That's why he's saying this. The truth is actually much more complicated. It's not just half of us that matters. It's the whole person. What Jesus is saying is that it's the body and the soul, the outside, the inside, the mouth, the heart. It all matters to God. Jesus teaches us that the inside, the outside, the heart, the sexual behavior, it's all integrally linked. He's connecting the heart, the inner life, the immaterial to the body. The outer life to mouths and hands and thighs and genitals. Put it another way, the inside and the outside are one whole before God. The inside shapes the outside. The, the sinful heart produces bad consequences in the life of the body. Those consequences include porneia. Porneia is visible bodily behavior produced by hearts that are captivated with sin. In the New Testament, Paul also uses the word porneia in 1 Corinthians. He's addressing the sexual sin in the congregation his response to what's going on there is actually theological. It's about who God is. He says, and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one uh, body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so what we have is that Paul here draws, as Jesus did on the creation narrative, to, to invoke the theological reality of sex. Look at it's one it's one. Paul says again in the next verses, he says, run from sexual sin. No other sin affects clearly the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. You got to honor God with your body. He says, reject porneia, run. Turn your back. Go the other way. We know that Paul is not saying that we were saved by our works, that we're, but rather we're saved by the grace of Jesus, and which he poured out for us on the cross and again on the resurrection. And so our understanding of sex gone wrong can never be one of works-based righteousness. As though we can get sex right in order to get our relationship right with God. We don't get sex right and then we come to God. It actually runs the other way. God the Father, because of what Jesus has done, restores us into a right relationship with him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit dwells in us, giving us power to bear faithful witness in the world to what Jesus has done. And part of that bearing faithful witness is to follow what Paul says in the terms of from shunning porneia or run, flee. In other words, there's hope. There's hope. Remember my list of welcomes? Some of you resonated somewhere along the line. Maybe some of you embraced a couple. I welcomed you a couple times. This is the church. It's for all people. All people with all baggage. And there's hope. 
You come to hear hope. You come to be set free. You come to be prayed for. You come to praise the Lord. You come to connect with people. There is hope here. And the glorious truth of this gospel is that salvation doesn't stop with our forgiveness. It moves into our transformation. Things are changed. There is hope. Paul sees sexual holiness as an obvious part of this transformation or as we would call sanctification. We are made holy. We are made like God. We become visible testimonies to what God has done in our lives. And this means that we have to learn to abstain from porneia. First Thessalonians, Paul goes on to teach about God's good intentions for holy people. He's talking to you, the church. It is God's will for you to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. Again, it's not that sex is bad. He's just saying stay away from sexual sin. Each of you learn to control your own body. Live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who don't know God and his ways, which is the culture around themselves. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned before you. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So porneia is sex that rejects the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Porneia is sex that exploits people. Porn takes God's good gift of sex. It twists it away from reality. It replaces good bodies with fake, airbrushed, even plastic now. And it trains us to desires, not reality, but falseness. Worse, porn takes sex out of the context of the relationship and places it instead in the market. Pornea is sex that is simply bought and sold, and that's bad sex. We need to tell the truth about sex that is bought and sold. We got to tell the truth about what it means to cheat, what it means to break fidelity, what it means to be controlled by hearts bound to sin and selfishness, and to have sex selfishly without any regards to other people. When sex exploits, we have to tell the truth that this is bad sex. This is what is called porneia. Bad sex is naked and ashamed, as mentioned in Genesis. It hides from the light of day when Adam and Eve sinned. Bad sex preys on the nakedness of others. Sex is bad when men and women deny responsibility for their actions. And sex is bad when it denigrates men and when it denigrates women. And God has a better plan for us than pornification. Paul writes that the body is not for porneia, but it's for the Lord. God redeems what we have forfeit. God, think about it, God makes the broken whole again. That's awesome. God heals the sick. He, he has opened up to us again and again and again, and he invites us back to the good delights that he first created in the garden. So what if you've acted outside of God's will for sex and your body? There's great news. The great news is that although there's a highlighting of sexual sin in the Bible because of its effect, it's still forgivable. You can still be forgiven. You can still be set free. You can still do a 180 and start a new pathway. 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth, again, to the Christians. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or, or, or well, basically nobody will inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> it's what it is. And then he goes on and he says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I love that. That's what you once were, but now you've been cleansed, you've been washed. And so what we see in Scripture, we see that God's boundaries for sex are hugely important. And if you've crossed those boundaries, it's not over for you. You're not damaged goods. God forgives you. He can heal you. He can heal the effect of sin in your life. You need to hold on to that. You, you cannot step so low that God's love will not reach down and pick you up again and restore you and embrace you. So let me give you some practical takeaways today. I've, I've inundated you. I've shocked you. Maybe, maybe I haven't. But you need something practical to walk away with. If you're caught in the struggle, I can't say it enough contact us at the office i don't care if you're male or female young or old we want to help you to the best of our ability i think the first and foremost point the first step is to admit it and to tell somebody you trust that you have an issue and and again for your sake we want to help I think we sometimes also think that, well, you know, if I come to God and I clean my stuff up, then it's, it's going to be okay. Well, let me just tell you, studies are telling us that it takes two to three years of therapy or of counseling to get ourselves, especially if you're hooked on porn, specifically addiction to porn, you need therapy or counseling to get whole. But let me just say this, it's possible. It's possible. The thing is, is that you have to start somewhere first. And that usually that's just an admission. And taking the next step, telling somebody. Are there people in your life that you can trust? Great, talk to them. If not, talk to us. There is nothing that will shock me anymore. But you know what I find thrilling is that when somebody can come in, bear their heart, bear their soul, and say, I just need to, I just need to start fresh. And then today is that new day. The church needs to be that place. The church needs to be that hospital to help you get refreshed, to understand that you're forgiven, to give you guidelines, boundaries, whatever it may be that you need to get back on the road. Secondly, Paul writes to Philippians. He says, brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I think this is a lot where we all struggle because our spiritual battle begins in the mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2 makes it very clear. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. So notice how we worship God with our bodies and what we do with our bodies. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God transform you. And I love this, into a new person. By changing the way that you think. By the renewing 
of your mind. And then you will learn to know. So now you see the process. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is what? Good. Good and pleasing and perfect. That's the hope. And so God's prescription for us, because the church is the hospital, it's the place where we need the doctor, the great physician. He says to keep our thought life immersed in the scriptures. My son, attend to my words, incline your ears to my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. Let them be in the midst of your heart, for they are life unto those that find them in health to the flesh. Proverbs 4. Do you get up? in time to get alone and get God's word down your heart. Do you take that time to meditate? The first thing you do when you pull up your phone, are you checking your messages or do you go to scripture? May I encourage you to be the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is go straight to scripture. Start right there. Load up on scripture. It's absolutely imperative that you have a quiet time every day. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's on the road, wherever. Get up. Fellowship with Jesus. Saturate your soul with the scripture. Bathe yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Join us because we're going through version and we're doing a corporate reading for Lent. And there's a whole bunch of people on there and you can interact with us too. I love reading what God is teaching others. Go to our Facebook page and you can sign up directly from there. Proverbs 4.25 says, guard what you look at. Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. So why do some people look and some don't? It's because of our thought life. Everybody's tempted. Everybody's tempted. But how you think governs how you see. We're not just a helpless victim. Listen, you can make up your mind. You can do this. Right? Job made a decision. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Maybe you need to make a covenant with your eyes. And don't wait until you're in the middle of temptation, you know, and it's overcoming you. You know, what you see determines what you think. And what you think determines what you see. Get alone with God. Find a quiet place. Read your Bible. Make some solemn decisions before God. And by his grace and with his help, You'll not look at this stuff. You'll not be immersed in this stuff. The decision will guard your heart and guard your sight. He wants you. He wants me to live a fruitful life, a life of sexual fulfillment, a happy family life to the best of our ability. He wants you to get your prayers answered and to have a progressive realization of his will for your life. God wants you to know, and this is not a, a prosperity message, but he wants you to know success in the highest. He wants you to know that you can conquer this. And how do you do it? Romans 12, 1 and 2 starts here. Can I pray for you today? Can I pray for you today? All of you? Because it's not just Gen Z. All of us, us, me included. God, when we come to you, it's like walking out of darkness into light. And, and in our life, there are so many things, that, so many experiences that damage, they spoil our everyday lives. There are so many things that prevent us from being the kind of people that, that you have meant for us to be. 
And we're wandering. We haven't quite yet arrived anywhere. We're on this journey. We don't know where we're going, but we've started something and we're not finished. And yet, as we read your word, you're asking us to have faith just to believe. And God, sometimes it really is hard for us just to believe. I'm thankful for the joy of life, for this beautiful world in which you've placed us. For all those things that you have given to us to share in this journey we call life. Those whom we have shared precious moments with, those who have been there for us when we've needed them. We thank you for laughter, God, for tears, for seeing, for listening, for thinking, for doing, and just for being alive. Because you created a phenomenal earth. I thank you for the words and the deeds of those who have changed life for other people. Those who have actually gone and brought words of hope to those who are broken. A message of love to those who are down. Those who have actually spoken words of forgiveness to those who are wrong. And those whose lives have been brought encouragement to those without joy. You use others to move us along this road. Thank you for those who warn others of danger and for those who declare the good news of Jesus. But most of all, God, I stand here this morning thanking you for hope. A hope of a life with you. And God, uh, we are the physical expression of your mercy and grace. And I just pray through your strength and not my will but yours that you will make us an instrument of your peace. God, forgive us where we need forgiveness. Give us strength. Because honestly, God, we can't do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Many of us are probably already convicted of our wrongdoing, so we need to be guided on a path of repair and rejuvenation. Jesus, I understand I'm yours and I'm not my own. I understand that my body has been bought with a price. So I stand here this morning saying, please use me for your purpose and fill me with your spirit. Keep me in your will is my prayer for me and each person within the shot of my voice. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Stand with me. There is hope. I, I, I told people that I was probably going to be using terms maybe that are not going to make the church feel very comfortable but it's okay we the church needs to talk about it we the church need to talk to each other you need to find somebody to talk to you need to to do that if you can't find somebody that you trust to help you along the way I highly endorse Journey Canada oh that's conversion therapy no it's not they're not therapists it's not conversion therapy they're not doing anything against anybody's own wishes but they help guide and direct people we can do the same here at Seoul there are other outlets that we can suggest you go to as well but we want to see you healthy we want to see you happy we want to see you thriving the way that God has created you to thrive we want you to have hope we want you to have encouragement because that's what God wants for his creation because it 
is good. It is good. We want you to have the tools of discernment. I think I've given you some tools. If you want to see some of the stats, if you want to read some of the things, just email the office and I'll create something and you can watch some videos. There's a TED Talk that is absolutely phenomenal and devastating at the same time that I took some of the information from. There's hope, people. And for those of you who lasted an hour without your phone. <laughs> In ancient time, the one who blessed extends hand for blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Whatever you face, people, you don't face it alone. Wherever you go, you don't journey alone. However, you suffer. You don't bear it alone. Whoever you are, wherever you go, however you journey, now go in peace, in hope, and in faith, and go with Jesus, who is always with us. Now go and live the church. Amen.